Hello, I am Anika Orock, author of The Incredible Women of the All-American Girls Professional Baseball League, and you are listening to the fabulous Baseball and Barbecue Podcast with Jeff and Len. Hi, this is Gary Mack of the Mets Musings Podcast, and you're listening to Jeff and Len on Baseball and Barbecue, one of my favorite podcasts, and I know it's one of yours, too. The only problem is... After I get done listening to it, I'm hungry. All right, guys, take it away. Welcome to episode number 65 of Baseball and Barbecue. I am Len Aberman, and I am here with my favorite person that I'd want to invite to a barbecue, none other than... Who? Me? Jeff Cohen? That's right. That's you. And, oh, Jeff, again, the excitement is overwhelming because we have actually three great guests, but two great interview segments. (laughs) Yes. We are going to start with none other than Bob Kendrick. Bob Kendrick, who was our very first interview ever, comes back, joins us. I didn't think he could outdo his first appearance, but he definitely did. Bob, there was nobody better than Bob Kendrick when talking baseball. He is an absolute national treasure. And he is going to be talking about firsts. We, we thought, you know what? Everybody knows Jackie Robinson, obviously, the first African-American ball player. Yep. Okay. But then what about the first on every other team? Right. And we you get know, into that. Yep. They didn't have it. They, of course, he had it the hardest, but they didn't have it much easier. We, we, and, uh, we didn't know who these players are. We, we heard of some of them. Right. But yeah. Bob Kendrick knows them all. Right. Knows them all. Talks about them and, you know, the hard times that they face. So we're going to speak to him. And then, of course, after, after Bob Kendrick, we're going to bring you our new guests. Our, if you've heard, you've, you've been listening, you've heard that we've now partnered with BaseballBBQ.com. I partnered. I, we're, we've been talking about them on the show, about their website and their great products. Right. And, that's, and accessories. And that's Michael Mullen and Brett Mandel. They will be joining us, and we'll have a nice conversation with them. So I'm really looking forward to it. But, Jeff, before we get into that quickly, baseball season, which we didn't know if it was going to start up again, and maybe we're still not sure, is getting closer. Of course, barbecue season has always been here, but baseball season, what do you think? Is it going to happen? Well, we are releasing this on... July 11th. It's supposed to start, I think, July 23rd or 24th. We shall see. Hopefully they, they get going. It's going to be a 60-game, like they, they say, sprint. It's going to be very different. It's going to be really, uh, I think, uh, more of a glorified ex- exhibition schedule. But right. we'll see how it goes, and we'll enjoy it while we can. Yeah, this, it's going to be just It's going to be fun to see the players. A lot of the players are choosing to not play. You know, you've got some coaches that are uh, coaching remotely. I know Chili Davis of the Mets, uh, their hitting coach, 
he's, I guess he's coaching, but he's not actually there. I don't know, coaching remotely. Right. Uh, and it, it, I mean, it's going to be interesting. 60 games, but it's something. So it's something. But let's uh, talk baseball with, with Bob Kendrick. They say you never forget your first. And in this case, that's true. In February of 2018, we were a fledgling podcast hoping to interview someone from the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum in Kansas City, Missouri. We had no idea who we would be able to speak to, but we never expected that the president of the museum, someone regarded in such high esteem, would, without a moment's hesitation, agree to come on the show. We even opened the interview by telling him he was our first guest, and he replied, it's an absolute pleasure. I feel honored to be one of the first guests and have an opportunity to talk about baseball and barbecue from the barbecue capital of the world, Kansas uh. City. Since then, we've had on numerous guests, but this guest will always hold a special place in our hearts. Besides being a wonderful storyteller and baseball historian, he works relentlessly to preserve the league's history and to promote the wonderful museum. Baseball and Barbecue is extremely honored to welcome back Bob Kendrick. Welcome, Bob. Man, it's great to be back, man. Thanks for having me. You know, Bob, a couple months ago, Len and I went to an exhibit in Upper Manhattan about the Polo Grounds. Uh, the curator was Neil Scher, and he had an exhibit about the Polo Grounds, Ebbets Field, baseball in New York. And he had a baseball card there of Hank Thompson. And he yes. said that Hank Thompson... We all know Jackie Robinson was the first African-American to, to play baseball in 1947. I think most of us know that Larry Doby was second. And a few of us know Pumpsy Green was the last one to integrate with the Boston Red Sox in the 50s. But Hank Thompson, uh, we, we didn't know until we went to the show, was the first African-American to integrate two teams. Two. That's he broke amazing. The barrier. He broke can, you talk about his, can you talk about his time in the Negro League before coming to uh, Major League Baseball? Well, well, Hank Thompson was a star here for the great Kansas City Monarch. The great Henry Thompson would integrate both the St. Louis Browns and the New York Giants. And he's with the Giants before Monty Irvin or Willie Mays makes it over to the Giants. And so he does. He's the only player to hold that distinction of integrating two major league teams. And, and Henry Thompson was an outstanding ball player. Who, whose personal demons likely prevented him from having a Hall of Fame career. And sometimes that's a tragedy of sports. Life gets in the way every now and then. Mm -hmm. and, and as humans, we're all flawed in some capacity. Now, sometimes those flaws don't supersede our ability to function in life. But with Henry Thompson, it probably derailed what could have been a Hall of Fame caliber career. And... But Henry Thompson was outstanding. We played here on, the, on some great Monarch teams with Buck O'Neill and uh, his teammate over with the St. Louis Browns was future Hall of Famer Willett Brown. And they both leave the Monarchs to go to the St. Louis Browns the same year that Jackie Robinson and Larry Doby break the color barrier. And, and it's part of the story that a lot of people don't know that there are five guys who actually – go into the major leagues in 1947. We know the story of Jackie and we know it intimately and know it very well and rightfully so. He was that pioneer that got this whole thing rolling. We recently started to focus on Larry Doby. 
You know, it took a while. It's mm -hmm. really only been over the last decade that we've finally given Larry Doby his props. The just do for his pioneering role joining the Cleveland Indians and breaking the color barrier in the American League just weeks after Jackie. Well, the other three guys are the answers to a trivia question. And you just talked about it. Henry, Henry Thompson or Hank Thompson, as he was known, Willard Brown and Dan Bankhead. And Dan Bankhead is the answer to another trivia question. Who was the first African-American pitcher in Major League Baseball history? Most folks just assume that it was Satchel. Yeah, but Satchel doesn't go over until 1948. It was Dan Bankhead. And so, yeah, Henry Thompson was a great third baseman here for the Kansas City Monarchs. Henry Thompson, Monty Irvin, and Willie Mays formed the major's first all-black outfield. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's how versatile Henry Thompson was. Yeah, and I also yeah, no. read in Wikipedia that he was the first African-American to, to face another a pitcher uh, African-American, Don Newcomb. Don Newcomb. A lot of first for Hank Thompson. Yeah, <clears throat> Hank was in the middle of everything. Yeah. <laughs> and outstanding ball player. Like I said, you know, he had some issues off the field that ultimately derailed what could have been, I think, a possible Hall of Fame career. You mentioned also Monty Irvin, and we have a friend who we had on a show recently, Mark Healy. He wrote a book called Gotham Baseball, New York's All-Time Team, and he mentioned Monty Irvin as the all-time New York left fielder for uh, in all of New York. And we all know Monty Irvin was, was a great player as, as well. Yeah, no, no, you get no argument from me. <laughs> Monty was outstanding. And, and as I've said on countless occasions, I wish Major League Baseball had gotten Monty Irvin when he was 20, 21 years old. There was absolutely nothing that Monty Irvin could not do on the baseball field. And he had the movie star good looks. He had superstardom written all over him, man. He had everything. And he was actually, guys, the Negro League's owner's choice to break the color barrier. If the color barrier was going to be broken, the owners had been essentially polled to see who it would, would be. They wanted Monty Irvin because Monty Irvin had really the same pedigree that Jackie had. So Monty Irvin was college educated. Monty had served in the military. Monty was married. He was stable. And so, he, but Monty actually was a better baseball player than Jackie. And that's not taking anything away from Jackie because Jackie turns himself into a Hall of Fame caliber baseball player, but Monty Irvin was a superstar player for the Newark Eagles, playing for Effa Manley's Newark Eagles, and, and man could flat out do it all. When he does get to the major leagues, he's 30 years old, mm -hmm. and he still has an outstanding major league career. Mm -hmm. But man, if they got him when he was 20, 21, oh, ain't no telling what kind of numbers he would have put up. And we heard that he was, he was delayed because of, I guess, an army injury or, or something with his, I guess, in the ear, affected his balance or something. Yeah, no, no, he wasn't right when he came back. He was suffering from what back then they called shell shock. Today we would call it post-traumatic syndrome. Right. And, and so he really turned down the opportunity to be the first because he knew he needed to get his mind and he needed to get his body right if you're going to take on that enormous task of being that pioneering first guy. 
Because as you all both well know, the first guy cannot fail. Right, if right. the first guy fails, there is no second guy. Mm -hmm. and, and that's the kind of pressure that was on Jackie. So while there may have been guys who were better baseball players, there is no question that Jackie Robinson was the best prepared baseball player to deal with the social adversity that that first guy was going to have to deal with. Now, Monty was also having contract squabbles with Effa Manley, who owned the Newark Eagles. And, and to be frank, Effa Manley was not a fan of Branch Rickey. Matter of fact, she couldn't stand Branch Rickey mm -hmm. because she felt like Rickey was going to come in and try and take players who were under contract away from Negro League owners without compensation. And truth of the matter is, that was his mindset. It really was. Mm -hmm. You know, as we celebrated yesterday, yesterday, May 6th, the 75th anniversary of Jackie Robinson's first game here in Kansas City with the Kansas City Monarchs, May 6th, 1945, he makes his Monarch debut. By the end of the year, he was gone. He had literally disappeared. Mm. Branch Rickey took Jackie Robinson away from the Kansas City Monarchs. But the Monarchs owner, a guy named J.L. Wilkinson, everybody called him Wilkie. Wilkie was white. Yeah, Wilkie was white. Mm -hmm. and, and there was no way that this white man who had made his entire living in black baseball could stand up and protest and block what every black person in America had been waiting to happen for a black man to play in the major leagues. If he does, it's a wrap. Right. Those black fans would have turned their back on him the minute that this was discovered. Mm -hmm. And so Wilkie was damned if he did and damned if he didn't. Mm -hmm. And so publicly, Wilkie said all the right things, but privately, he's seething. And he's not seething necessarily because the black man was about to go play in the major leagues or have the opportunity to get to the major leagues. He's seething because this black man that you just took away from me, you about to put me out of business. Right. You about to put me out of business. So by night, Jackie breaks color barrier in 47. In 1948, Wilkie sold his team to his business partner, T.Y. Baird, because the handwriting was on the wall. It wasn't a matter of if. It was a matter of when sure. the Negro Leagues were going to fold. So, sure. yes, were there other guys who could have done it? Monty Irvin could have absolutely have done it had he been in his right frame of mind and his body had been in the state that he wanted it to be. And there likely were some other guys. But, again, that first guy can't fail. Right. Bob, we talked a lot about this and we, when we wanted to have you on because, yes, Jackie Robinson, the first, most pressure, of course. But the other thing is, we, we were talking about first, there were 16 teams at the time. It's, it's our contention that it had to be difficult for the first on every team. Now, not to the level it was for Jackie Robinson, of course, but it no, had no. to be difficult for the first. No, right. And, and, and honestly, I'm not sure it got any easier for Pumps of Green in 1959 than it did for Jackie. As a matter of fact, we are right now building a brand new permanent exhibit at the Negro Leagues Museum called Barrier Breakers. And the Barrier Breaker exhibit will chronicle all of the players 
who broke their respective major league teams color barriers from Jackie in 1947 with Brooklyn through mm -hmm. the late Pompsy Green, who would break the color barrier with Boston becoming the last to integrate a major league roster in, in 1959. So this surprises people that this played out over a span of 12 years. Sure. Yeah. I yeah. think people just assume that when Jackie breaks the color barrier, that the doors just open wide right. open and, and right. black folks just ran on into the major leagues. But it was a very slow, meticulous mm. process. And essentially, they had quota systems. At least the majority of the teams had quota systems in place. Branch Rickey, by and large, was far more aggressive signing black talent than virtually all of the other major league teams. And then, as you all well know, the National League was even more aggressive signing black players than the, than the American League was. The American League was very slow. And, and, and slow, not only slow, but reluctant. They really didn't want to do it. They almost succumbed to the pressure. See, Bill Vett brings Larry Doby over. See, I don't know if anybody else in the American League was ready to do it, but Bill Vett, who had contemplated when he was trying to buy the team in Philadelphia, he was going to fill it with Negro League stars. And, and Kennesaw Mountain Landers catch wind of what his plan was, and they refused to sell him the team. And that likely would have done it. So Beck signs Larry Doby. And then it's Bill Vec that brings Satchel Page over. See, but the other owners can just always look at Vec and saying, well, that's just Bill Vec being Bill Vec. Right. Uh huh. And, and so the other American League owners are really slow. But it's also one of the reasons why the National League started dominating all star games. And this, the pendulum of power started to shift mm -hmm. to the National League because they were bringing this exciting talent in. Yeah, it, it, was really, it, it was really interesting. Now, Hank Thompson and Monty Irvin, did they, they broke in on the same day for the New York Giants? Same day, Hank Thompson takes the field first. Right, okay. Break, and so in this exhibition that we're doing, both guys are represented because they did play uh, the same day. And see, Willett Brown would join his teammate, Henry Thompson. See, the truth of the matter is, Hank Thompson and Willett Brown when they get to the St. Louis Browns, guys, they realized that they had left a team in the Kansas City Monarchs that was far better than the St. Louis Browns. The St. Louis Browns <laughs> was a sideshow. Yeah. I mean, really, if you're a baseball fan in St. Louis, you're a Cardinal fan. Cardinal. Nobody really cared about the St. Louis Browns, but the St. Louis Browns thought that both Hank Thompson and Willett Brown would do for them what Jackie had done for Brooklyn. In, in terms of black fan base wanting to come see them play. And, and so neither one of them ever got a fair shake. And, and Willett Brown's first plate appearance with the St. Louis Brown, he didn't even have his bats yet. And so he borrowed a teammate's bat. He has a home run in his first game. Gets back to the dugout, the teammate shot at the bat. Welcome to the major league. Yeah, and, and so even as these guys transitioned in, it wasn't like they were just welcome with open arms. Mm -hmm. A lot of resistance, and, and, and I think the resistance was really created more by fear, you know, because you had a lot of Southern-born major leaguers. These guys had Southern roots, and, and so they're dealing with this mindset of what they've been told about black folk, whether they had ever been around them or not, and so you've got this prevailing belief that they're going to behave in this manner, which is also part of the reason why. Robinson was the ideal guy 
because Jackie was polar opposite to the stereotypical belief that folks had about black athletes. Jackie Robinson walks into a dugout, guys, where he was likely the most intellectual being in that dugout. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he's going to Pasadena College and, and UCLA. I don't know if there was another Brooklyn Dodger that stepped foot on the college campus. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> yes. <laughs> That's a very good point. Bob, the next guy to break the next color barrier for the Boston Braves is Sam Jethro. Jet. Jet. You must have a good story about him. Well, man, number one, rookie of the year. He's rookie of the year when he comes in and he's old. Yeah, the Jet is old when he gets there. And, and it's just a great example. You know, one of the things that I love, and, and, and the Jet was just that. He was fast. The Jet could really run. And the Jet was one of those big-time bonus babies when he comes over. So the Boston Braves, you know, have a black player well before the Red Sox do. Uh-huh. And, and so, but now Sam Jethro was an outstanding player who, again, he doesn't get to the major leagues until he's old. He's still rookie of the year. He was an old rookie of the year. You know what I'm saying? And still the oldest rookie of the year. Yeah, yeah. I think mean, Jet might have been 30 years old when he was rookie of the year. You know, maybe because so many of these guys were trying to push their age back so that they could get a chance to go to the show, you know? And, and so guys, you know, back then were almost, I don't know, they were encouraged to push their age back in hopes that they might get there. But now Sam Jethro was an outstanding player in the Negro Leagues. And of course, like a lot of the early African-American players who transitioned in, was Drew Accolades as Rookie of the Year. One of my favorite factoids as it relates to the Negro Leagues from 19... 19- 49 to 1959, nine of 11 National League MVPs were former Negro League stars. That doesn't even include the number of rookie of the years, right? you know, who were former Negro Leaguers. So it gives you a clear indication of the immediate impact that the Negro Leagues had on Major League Baseball. Yeah. And, and the Jet was just one of those great stars who got that opportunity, even though it was late in his, in his career. He'd already logged a lot of, you know, a lot of games playing in the Negro Leagues by the time he gets there. And, and so he didn't get the long career that you would have liked to have seen had he been given the opportunity earlier. After Sam Jethro, who's, who I read could outrun the word of God, they said. <laughs> <laughs> you had the Chicago White Sox. In, I think it was May 1st, 1951. Minnie Minoso. Minnie Minoso, my good friend, my dear friend. I miss him tremendously. Minnie starred, of course, for the New York Cubans in the Negro League before getting that opportunity to break the color barrier with White Sox. Of course, he had signed with Cleveland first and then moves over and joins the White Sox. And he, in many respects, he is the Latino Jackie Robinson which is why I believe wholeheartedly that Minnie Minoso should be in the National Baseball Hall of Fame. Minnie Minoso had been a great player in the Negro Leagues. Minnie Minoso was the heart and soul of the go-go White Sox for so many years. One of the game's greatest ambassadors. And and so it it broke my heart when he didn't get inducted in 2006 when they were looking at Negro Leaguers at that time and inducted 17 Negro Leaguers. And my good friend, both my good friends, 
the late great Buck O'Neill and Minnie Minoso got left out. Minnie should absolutely be in the National Baseball Hall of Fame. He is that important of a figure as we look at baseball history, you know, coming over from Cuba to live the American dream and then getting that opportunity to play the game that he loves so dearly. And like a lot of the Spanish-speaking players who played in the Negro Leagues, they came to this country and they were introduced to Jim Crow. They had no idea what this was all about. Yeah, many would talk about being called the N-word and he had no idea what it even meant. And then when he gets to the major leagues, he talks so beautifully about how often he got hit by pitches. And as he said, he didn't get hit by pitches because he was crowding the plate. He was getting hit by pitches because they were telling him to throw at him, you know, and, and which was the case for most of the black ball players when they came up. Jackie got knocked down so much that Branch Rickey created a special baseball cap. Because you have to remember, this was before the batting helmet. And Rickey creates a special baseball hat, guys, that had metal inserts sewn into it to try and protect his head. And it was much the same for all of those African-American players when they came up. So the, the, the playing conditions were difficult, but yet they found a way to persevere. And they found a way to still be great with that tremendous weight on their shoulders. Because I can tell you this, every one of those players felt like they were representing an entire race of people when they came up. and those who succeeded, used it as fuel, and were motivated. I think some could not handle that pressure of everything that went into trying to transition into the major leagues. So I don't think those who didn't make it, many of them never got a fair shake. And then the others just simply could not handle the social pressure. It was too much. You're in a, you're in a situation where nobody wanted you to be there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh-huh. And, and so with Jackie, because he was able to persevere and then Brooklyn started to win. Right. Now winning cures a lot of these evils. Sure. <laughs> so, sure. and Brooklyn started to win, all of a sudden it didn't matter what color Jackie was. But early on, it wasn't that way. And nor was it that way for all of those players. Like I said, there was nobody there greeting them with open arms. Even when Pompsy Green breaks the color barrier, with Boston in 59. You know, the, the next one I see here, it happens two years later with mm-hmm. Bob Trice of the Philadelphia A's. It happened, I'm surprised it took two and a half more years. Yeah, no, no, Philly was in no hurry. And, and Philly, Philly was, you know, when you look at the film 42 and that ugly scene that happens now, although that was the Phillies, that ugly scene that takes place between the manager who sure. just absolutely been race jackie that's mm-hmm. true that's a true story yeah matter of fact the film probably watered it down in terms of the vileness of the language that was used and, and they did literally stage they apologized to jackie and they staged that picture being taken where he didn't want to shake hands with jackie so they hold it back but the, 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 the city of philadelphia was was very well known for the racial nature of that city. And it carried that stigma for quite some time. You know, even contemporary guys like Dick Allen felt the sting of playing in Philadelphia. Kurt Flood refused to trade because he didn't want to come to Philadelphia. 
that's how difficult it was at that time for African-American sports figures in the city of brotherly love. It wasn't too doggone brother. <laughs> and so, yeah. And so, yeah, the athletics were late in the equation as well. And the Phillies were very late in the equation. Chicago Cubs, same year, actually same month uh, in September. Uh, Ernie Banks. The great Ernie the Banks. Great. Yes, another, another, you know, I've been so blessed, man. I've gotten to know so many of these guys, and I knew Ernie very well. Oh, you guys tell us fact, about him. I had the opportunity to speak at his memorial service, not the funeral service, but a memorial service that was held in Dallas, Texas, his, his, his native Dallas, Texas. And, and Ernie was like a surrogate son to the late, great Buck O'Neill. It would be Buck who would bring him to the Kansas City Monarchs. The legendary Cool Papa Bell sees Ernie playing softball in Dallas. Ernie was a softball player and a basketball player. And, and, and Cool Papa Bell sees Ernie down in Dallas and recommends to Buck that he should sign Ernie Banks. Well, if Cool Papa Bell recommends, well, you, you ain't doubting what Cool says. And Ernie does sign, and they bring him to Kansas City. And, of course, he would eventually go on to break the color barrier with the Chicago Cubs, become Mr. Cub. And that very gregarious, outgoing personality that you saw in Ernie, that wasn't there when he was originally came up to the Monarchs. He's very shy and, and very reserved. But Buck O'Neill brought that out. And he took on much of Buck's persona. And, and Buck taught him, and Ernie would have been the first to tell you, that he owed his Hall of Fame career to Buck O'Neill. That Buck O'Neill taught him not only the game, but he taught him life. He taught him social graces. He taught him how to dress. And, and then that, that personality started to evolve. And then all of a sudden he's, you know, last play two. He's Mr. Cub. And obviously one of the greatest shortstops in, in, in baseball history. And, and so, yeah, getting to know him through the years was an absolute godsend for me. He would call me from time to time and just wanted to see how I was doing. Just wanted to see how my family was doing. And, and it just, you know, it was one of those pinch yourself moments when they, they, they say, well, Ernie Banks is on the phone for you. you know? <laughs> It's like we have with you, you know? <laughs> this is a pinch yourself moment with us, with you. Yes. <laughs> and so, no, man, again, I was so heartbroken when we lost him. And you go, you go back and look. We lost Ernie and Minnie Minoso just a little over a month apart. So, yeah, you know, so the two most iconic baseball figures in Chicago baseball history, Mr. Cub and, and the great Minnie Minoso. So north side, south side, we lose them in, in basically a two-month time span. And I see Minnie at Ernie's funeral. And then, you know, a little over two, a little about a month or so later, I get the call saying that Minnie has passed away. Mm -hmm. and, and so it just goes to show how fragile this history is. And a player of the magnitude of Ernie Banks and Minnie Minoso who went on to have great major league careers. In many ways, they validate the Negro Leagues when fans learn that they started their careers. Because a lot of people don't know 
that those two legendary Chicago stars began their careers in the Negro Leagues. Right. And they only knew them as major leaguers. So mm -hmm. once you discover that, yeah, it does help, I think, in some ways validate the talent that was there in the Negro Leagues. Yeah. The next two on the list was on the same day with different teams. And i tell you the truth, I have not heard of these couple, a couple of players, Kurt Roberts for the Pittsburgh Pirates and Tom Alston for the St. Louis Cardinals. And see, those two did not come out of the Negro League. They're not Negro Leaguers. Okay. You know, they were, they were some of the young African-Americans who got a chance. They didn't necessarily have to go play in the Negro Leagues to get there. And see, and that's what happened. So when Jackie breaks the color barrier, he now creates this opportunity for other African-American ballplayers to start dreaming of playing in the major leagues. But it also signaled what happened to the Negro Leagues. The Negro Leagues, in some respects, I think, thought that they would remain a feeder system for Major League Baseball. But the truth of the matter is, after Major League Baseball had siphoned so much of that talent out, they didn't need the Negro Leagues to be a feeder system anymore. They had their own developed minor league minor system. League. So now that young African-American who was aspiring to play professional baseball could totally bypass the Negro Leagues and go right into the major leagues, minor league system for that same opportunity. And that's the case with Roberts and Austin, you know, as you mentioned, the first black pirate, first black cardinal. So they didn't have to go through the Negro Leagues. Len, I can't pronounce the guy, the uh, Cincinnati's red name. Would you please take it? <laughs> <laughs> You're asking me. <laughs> Listeners of this show know pronunciation is not my strong point, but uh, Nino Escalera. Nino Escalera. Reds. Yes. And, and Chuck Harmon, right? Chuck Harmon. So on Chuck Harmon, who I knew. I did not know, I didn't get a chance to meet Mr. Escalera, but I knew Chuck Harmon, who sadly died last year. He passed away last year. Mm -hmm. Chuck Harmon was a tremendous athlete, had been a great basketball player, and, and, and play, didn't play in the Negro Leagues very long before he got that opportunity to join the Cincinnati Reds. And so both men are highlighted in our new exhibit, which is also, by the way, guys, a traveling exhibition as well. And it was set to debut in, with the Los Angeles Dodgers on April 15th. And, of course, coronavirus killed yeah. that opportunity sure. for us to debut that traveling version of our Barrier Breaker exhibit. But Chuck Harmon was an incredible human being who just happened to be a great athlete, as I mentioned, tremendous basketball player as well. I read he was the first to coach pro basketball. Yeah, now, he, he, was, he was astute, you know, very intellectual, right. tremendous athlete, and just the salt of the earth kind of gentleman. You know, I really enjoyed my encounters with him and just getting a chance to sit down and just talk with him. You know, and, and that's really been the case with all the guys that I've gotten a chance to know over the years. You kind of pick the brains. You learn stuff. You learn a lot about humility from these men, you know. And I think that's one of the things that I take away from the richness of the work that we do here at the Negro Leagues Museum and, and these amazing opportunities that I've been afforded in this work to meet these legendary athletes, but they're legendary people. Yeah. yeah. We see that for the Washington Senators in September 54, Carlos Paula, another one who yes, I'm not familiar yes. with. 
Yeah, well, and, and again, a guy that moved over that did not come through the Negro Leagues. Uh, and, and so he was, one again, one of those guys who got in the pipeline as a result of the integration of our sport, but he did not come through the Negro Leagues. And then someone yeah. we know very intimately here in New yeah. York, the great Elson Howard. Ellie. Yeah. Ellie, Ellie starred here for Buck O'Neill and the Kansas City Monarchs. As a matter of fact, guys, you know who his roommate was when he was with the Monarchs? Who? Ernie Banks. Wow. Wow. And Ernie says that he and Ellie, they stayed in Kansas City when they were playing here for the Monarchs. They stayed at a hotel called the Street Hotel, Black-owned hotel, the most majestic of the Black-owned hotels, maybe a small couple of small motels that were here in Kansas City at that time. Kansas City, like every other city, was very segregated. So there was only about a 13-block radius in which African-Americans could function and move within uh, Kansas City. But man, within those 13 blocks, you had everything you needed. And, and Ellie and Ernie were roommates staying there at the street hotel, and Ernie says they would sit up at night. Because now you got to remember, by now, Jackie's already broken the color barrier. And they would sit up at night and they would daydream or, in this, in this case, dream about which one of them was going to get to the major leagues first. And, of course, Ernie beats his roommate. because And then the Yankees do sign Ellie, who becomes the first black Yankee. Elston Howard got converted to a catcher. Right. And as a result of the Yankees converting him to a catcher, he basically toiled in the minor leagues for so many years. Because when your catcher is Yogi Berra, yeah, you ain't there. ever going to get up. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and so when he finally gets to the Yankees, he becomes the heart and soul of those Yankee teams and the first African-American to be MVP in the American League. And, and Ellie had been a tremendous, I mean, tremendous athlete. He turned down a scholarship to Ohio State University, football scholarship to come play for Buck O'Neill and the Kansas City Monarch. Yeah, Ellie was be? a fantastic, not just ball player, human being. He mm. just, you know, he spent all that time with the Yankees. He's a coach. Uh, he got involved with that Reggie Jackson, Billy Martin incident. He just separated him. Ellie was just tremendous. Yeah, tremendous. yeah I, you know, it's been a while, but I've kind of gotten to know his widow, Arlene, and, and she's just a sweetheart as well. And so now Ellie invented the batting donut, you know, all these things. He, he made some tremendous contributions to this game. We lost him way too soon. And, and so I never got the opportunity, sadly, to meet him. Though. He should be in the Hall of Fame, Bob? I think so. Yeah. I think so. Now, again, yeah, I I'm, I'm, so I'm very, <laughs> I'll be the first to admit it, but I absolutely think he should. Now, you said something about I, – I read that. That was very interesting that he invented the batting donut because it used to be the players would stand there and they'd ha- take two bats, three bats and swing them. And he invented the batting donut and then they obviously didn't need that. And uh, I just thought that was very interesting. A little side. Note. <laughs> yeah. Very cool. Did he ever get any, uh, any royalties or anything? Yeah, that's that? a probably... good question. I wonder if he ever got paid for it. <laughs> yeah, probably not. <laughs> probably not. And after Elston Howard, of course, we have in 57, 10 years after Jackie Robinson, finally, the Philadelphia Phillies, uh, John Kennedy, 
John Kennedy, who did play in the Negro Leagues, played here for the Kansas City Monarchs. And he wasn't in the Negro League long before he gets his opportunity. The Philly was just so tough. And, and, and John is one of those players who really never got a fair shake. And, and like so many of the players, they would get banished to the minor leagues. And no matter seemingly how well they might play in the minor leagues, they never got called up. You know, Artie Wilson was one of those guys. Sam Harrison was one of those guys. Because particularly that older Negro Leagues player, they just weren't going to give them a job that they would take away from a young white kid. And, and, and so I think about Ray Dandridge, who made it up to the Minneapolis Millers. And Ray Dandridge was out playing everybody there with the Millers. He was 38 years old at the time, though. So they were never going to bring him up, you know, even though he was out playing those young players. And, and so the plight of those early black players, and particularly those players in the Negro Leagues who were a little bit more seasoned players, Man, it was just challenging for them to get the fair shape that they deserved. And so, so many of them toiled, or like I say, were banished to the minor leagues. Even seeing what Jackie Robinson did with the Brooklyn Dodgers and what Larry Doby and Satchel Paige did with the Cleveland Indians, even seeing all that, and they still refused. Winning wasn't as important to them as, as their prejudice and their racism. It's and, and just you're, you're right trash. On. It's really and, to think that Boston, who had its pick of the litter of great black stars, all these guys, they brought these Stacey's tryouts, Jackie and all these guys were considered not good enough to play for them. But that was really the mindset for the majority of the team because they just simply did not want black talent, even if they knew this talent was outstanding and could help them win. Clark Griffith, who owned the Washington Senator, man, he wanted to sign or he tinkered with the notion of signing Buck Leonard and Josh Gibson well before Ricky made the move to sign Jackie Robinson. This is in the early 40s when he's watching the Homestead Grays play in his ballpark. They are outdrawing the Washington Senators. And he's watching Buck Leonard play a dazzling first base and hitting line drives all over Griffith Stadium. He's watching Josh Gibson hit balls where no mere mortal had ever hit them. And, and he wanted to make the move, but I think he knew if he makes the move, he's going to be ostracized by his peers. And so the timing just wasn't right. So yeah, there were likely some other owners who kind of wanted to do it, but man, do you really want to rock the boat? Do you want to take on the ire of your fellow, your fellow owners? You know, again, this is a very prestigious group of 16. There's only 16 of these folks. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and, and so Ricky rocked the boat. But the timing was more favorable for Ricky, too, because we were coming out of World War II. Next one on the list before Pumpsy Green with Detroit Tigers, which, to tell you the truth, I thought there was – I thought it was kind of late for them. I thought they, they would integrate much earlier than in 1958, but Ozzie Virgil, Virgil, great player, great player. Great, great player, great player. Did not come through the Negro Leagues, but is the only one of the barrier-breaking group that's still alive. Yeah, Mr. Virgil is still alive. I had a chance to spend a, a wonderful weekend with him a number of years ago with my good friend Dave Winfield. He was working, he was a VP for the San Diego Padres at that time. And for 10 years, Dave Winfield put on one of the most significant salute to the Negro Leagues 
of any in Major League Baseball. And he had one of those outings. He had the great Ozzie Virgil out for that salute as one of the earlier pioneers of color in baseball. But, you know, again, the Tigers were late to the show as well. But you have to remember, Detroit was also a very segregated city as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it really it really was. And now, eventually, it has a tremendous legacy of African-American ballplayers, great African-American ballplayers. But it was slow. It was slow in the process. But it was typical of the American League. Right. And then we come to Pumpsy Green, who I don't know much about as a player. I know he played... Obviously, for the Boston Red Sox, he ended up with the, with the Mets in their, their 1963. But I don't know much about him as a player. Could you elaborate on him? Yeah, well, you know, two-time All-Star oh. with the Red Sox. Uh, so he was a good player. But the Red Sox could have had great players. Yeah. And they passed up the opportunity. And maybe part of it was that the Yankee family was racist. And maybe that you had scouts who didn't want to see these black players, so they would downgrade them in the scouting report because they didn't want these black players to come in and overshadow some of these great white stars. And, and so Mr. Green was a good player. We lost him last year. He passed away in July of last year. And you know, just a, a really decent human being mm-hmm. who I think, although he had the challenges of playing there in Boston still enjoyed his time in the major leagues. Now he didn't come through the Negro leagues either. And so out of the barrier breaking group, there was only a small number of them that didn't transition from the Negro leagues, but we talked and mentioned all of them tonight right. as looking at those, those trailblazing barrier breakers. Well, that was what, the, the story is, you know, just fantastic. We thank you. I want to move on to a, another subject. A couple of episodes ago, we had on a, a writer named Jeremy Beer, and he wrote a great book on Oscar Charleston. Yes. The, who, who uh, a Negro League player before the National League, Negro Leagues actually uh, uh, started in 1920. He played before that and actually played, mm-hmm. obviously, with that as well. He was writing that book. What a, what a player he was. Could you talk about Oscar Charleston? Tremendous player. And I'm so happy for Jeremy that he brought Charleston's story to life. Oscar Charleston is an American hero. Oscar Charleston enlisted in the U.S. Army when he was 15 years old. And Oscar Charleston, the late, great Buck O'Neill, my dear friend, says of Oscar Charleston that he was the greatest baseball player he ever saw, that he was Willie Mays before we ever knew who Willie Mays was. And the old-timers in the Negro Leagues say the closest thing to Oscar Charleston would have been Willie Mays. That's frightening, man. It's hard to believe that there was a player better than Willie Mays. Oscar Charleston is heralded as such. Five-tool guy, consummate five-tool guy, hit for power, hit for average, could feel, could run, could throw. In 1921, led the Negro Leagues in home runs, triples doubles, stolen bases, and batting average in the same season. And and again, as we so typically do, we like to draw comparison to white contemporary major leaguers. Well, if you were going to compare Charleston, he had the defensive abilities of Tris Speaker, the tenacity of Ty Cobb, 
and the bat of Babe Ruth rolled into mm-hmm. one dynamic wow. package. And, and Buck O'Neill says he never saw a center fielder who could go back on a ball the way Charleston could. Just seemed, He had uncanny instincts. Just seemed to know where that ball was coming down right off the crack of the bat. So he played a very shallow center field. So it was hard to bloop one in front of him. And man, unless you hit it on a rope, you couldn't get it over his head. And, and, and they all the old times in the Negro Leagues always talk. And, and, and I know people had kind of posted the great catch that Willie Mays makes in the, in the World Series there in the polo grounds. You know, and really the throw was better than the catch. But everybody remembers because it's this great over-the-shoulder running basket catch in the World Series. And, and so all the old-timers say, had that been Oscar Charleston, he'd have been waiting for that to come down. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to say something that might be, you know, get me whatever, uh, some feedback here, bad from the audience, I don't know. But you said, you know, comparing to white players. I, I think the comparison to Willie Mays, who just turned 89, is highest praise. And I'm going to say, I think Willie Mays, you know, everybody, when you ask people who the greatest player was, you're, you get a lot of Babe Ruth, right? But Babe Ruth, you know, at not, to, not that it was his fault, but he never played. He just played with white players. You know, he never played in an integrated league. Willie Mays, I think, might be the best, the greatest player to ever play Major League Baseball. Well, you know, most people, I think, concur. You know, and that's what Buck O'Neill would say. The greatest major leaguer I ever saw was Willie Mays. But the mm-hmm. best baseball player I ever saw was Oscar Charleston. Right. And, and my friend, my dear friend, the great writer, Joe Posnanski, who recently finished his Baseball 100 for The Athletic, had Willie Mays as his all-time greatest player. But I was just as excited the fact that there were three Negro leaguers in his top five. Oscar Charleston was number five. Henry Aaron was number four and Willie Mays was number one. And to me, again, that speaks volume to the talent that was there. Now, a lot of people did not know that both Mays and Aaron's career began in the Negro Leagues. And Mm -hmm. they are without question the two greatest living major leaguers Mm -hmm. today. Hands down. Yeah, Henry Aaron and Willie Mays in my book you know, and contrary to how people feel about Barry Bonds, Bonds was ranked number three on this list. He was a great ball player. And, and so, but when they learned that Mays and Aaron, who are going to be in everybody's all-time greatest top five list, that they come out of the Negro Leagues, is eye-opening. Yeah. yeah, it's eye-opening. And then when you start talking about lesser-known names like Oscar Charles, you know, all of a sudden, people kind of do have to pay attention when you hear folks say, well, Charleston might have been better than Willie Mays. And, and, and again, in a game of numbers, and baseball is just that, a game of numbers, no one's numbers are better than Henry Aaron. Yeah. And, and so these guys all come out of the Negro Leagues. And it's just a sampling of the tremendous talent that was there in the Negro Leagues. And it's why I contend, and I believe this 
with all my heart and all my soul, had the doors open before 1947, the record books would be entirely different. Sure. Because as I tell my guests at the museum, they didn't learn how to play baseball after 1947. They were playing great baseball well before 1947. Yeah. There was a connection between Henry Aaron and Oscar Charleston as they both played in Indianapolis. Indianapolis. Henry Aaron for the, for the Clowns, uh, yes. Charleston for the ABCs. What, yes. what shocked me, not, I shouldn't say shocked me, but surprised me was Oscar Charleston, after he played in, in uh, you know, the United States during the season, he goes down to Cuba for a, few, for a full season. And was he played, beloved. He year-round. And it was absolutely beloved. Most of the stuff that we have on Charleston is in the museum, things that came from his scrapbook while he was playing in various Latin American countries, but particularly Cuba. Uh-huh. And they're written in Spanish, but even without knowing Spanish, you could tell that he was revered. You see the cartoons with that big bat, you know, and, and he was just absolutely revered when he played in Cuba May 2nd was the anniversary of the first Negro Leagues game. And it was held in Indianapolis between the Indianapolis ABCs and the Chicago Giants. Contrary to, to what has been widely reported, people thought it was the Chicago American Giants, but it was actually the Chicago Giants. And that first game was played in Indianapolis on May 2nd, 1920. So we just commemorated the 100th anniversary of that game Charleston was part of that team, but as part of that commemoration, and while we couldn't get to Indianapolis because of the coronavirus pandemic, we still celebrated. And we went and we recently discovered that Oscar Charleston was buried in a cemetery there in Indianapolis in a relatively nondescript gravesite. And so we raised funds to put a proper headstone on the gravesite of the legendary Oscar Charleston. And as I've oftentimes said, so many of these players played in anonymity, they shouldn't lay at rest in anonymity. And so as part of our 100th anniversary celebration, we were able to get to Indianapolis while we weren't there for the ceremony. We were still able to put a much more proper and fitting headstone on the gravesite of one of the greatest baseball players of all time. Yeah, I saw the picture in the paper. Yeah, it's it's great. Very, very good that it was replaced. Bob, I saw you on uh, YouTube, I think it was. Uh, you were talking about Nashville. Yes. That was recently, right? As far as Nashville possibly getting a Major League Baseball team? Yes, uh, we're part of a group called the Nashville Stars. And the Nashville Stars was an old Negro Leagues team that was there in the city of Nashville for a brief period of time. And as Nashville is now looking at the opportunity to try and lure expansion baseball to Nashville, expansion major league baseball to Nashville, and and certainly baseball has made it known that they are looking to expand at some point in time. So they put a group together. They decided to name the team after the Negro League. So this would be unprecedented from the standpoint that if this were to happen, this would be the first ever major league team that carried a Negro Leagues team name. And we have a formal partnership with the group that is trying to bring professional baseball to Nashville, including a licensing agreement. And so this could be a game changer for the Negro Leagues Museum. Because as you well can understand, 
in our world, the opportunity to create perpetual income is so important. Mm -hmm. And a relationship and a business kind of relationship and partnership with a major league baseball team would do just that. And it also obviously would raise and heighten the awareness of the Negro Leagues Museum as the caretaker of this history and, and by and large play an important role in helping elevate the general awareness of the Negro League. So yeah, we're super excited about the possibilities. There's obviously a lot of work and it's just that, a possibility. But man, it's an honor to be part of that group that is working so diligently to bring Major League Baseball to Nashville. And I can tell you, Nashville is primed and ready. It is a great city. It is an, I mean, that city is explosive, man. It is dynamic. And, and I think without question, they are ready to support Major League Baseball. That's terrific. You, you mentioned the uh, 100th anniversary of the National, Negro National League and what the museum is going to do to commemorate that. Could you tell us a little more what you were planning to do and will that celebration happen when baseball gets back into full playing? Yeah, you know, it, it, again, it, it, it breaks my heart. It really does. Because this year was such a big year for the Negro Leagues Museum. We had been working for almost a year on our plans for this year-long centennial celebration. And guys, we get out the gate to a flying start. I mean, we on February 13th, which was actually the 100th anniversary of the birth of the Negro Leagues, 100 years from that date, the leagues were signed into existence at the Paseo YMCA right around the corner from where the museum currently operates. And so we go back into that building 100 years later, and we've got the commissioner of Major League Baseball, Rob Manfred. We've got Xavier James, the chief operating officer of Major League Baseball's Players Association. We've got the Honorable Mayor of Kansas City, Quentin Lucas, and Frank White, former Kansas City Royal legend who's in politics now. He's the Jackson County Executive, and Kansas City sits in Jackson County. He's with us. The Lieutenant Governor of the great state of Missouri, Mike Kehoe, he's all there. So we've got this dream team of distinguished guests there to help us commemorate the 100th anniversary of the birth of the Negro Leagues, and then jettison this year-long centennial celebration. Major League Baseball and the Players Association announced a joint $1 million contribution to the museum. So we are off and running. And then we announced some of the other plans, which included a National Day of Recognition, Major League Baseball-wide, that was scheduled for June 27th. And as significant as the million-dollar contribution was, and it's really important, we need the resources to help us do what we want to do and need to do in terms of our operations. I was just as excited about this National Day of Recognition, where all 30 Major League teams were going to wear our centennial patch on their sleeve in an unprecedented show of solidarity and essentially have fans join in for what we kind of build as a tip your cap to the Negro League. And as you know, in our sport, there's nothing more honorable than a simple tip of the cap. Mm -hmm. And for me, this was going to be a watershed moment. 
it was going to raise the profile of the Negro Leagues and raise the profile of the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum to an unprecedented fashion. And, and then we were going to end the year with a big 100th anniversary gala, a star-studded national baseball event. And in, in less than a month later, it all comes to a screeching halt. Yeah. I mean, it is almost surreal, man. And, and so we're still reeling, as you can well imagine, a little bit from this. I mean, we're optimistic, like everybody else, as we start to now come out of this health scare that we've been in the midst of. And it's more than just a health scare. It's very real. And, and so there's a lot of uncertainty, as it is with almost every facet of life in this country right now and around the world as we deal with coronavirus, but we're still optimistic that we'll be able to salvage some of this, but we're already making plans to roll this celebration into 2021 and celebrate the, you know, basically Negro Leagues 101. Mm -hmm. And because for me, this celebration is too important to have it be watered down. Oh yeah. And I don't know, we all looking forward for baseball being played again. And will Mm -hmm. it be played in empty stadiums? I think there's a high probability. We didn't want this National Day of Recognition to take place in an empty stadium. We wanted fans to be part of this. We wanted that energy to be at such a level. And and so I'm hopeful that we can carry some of these things over into 2021 so that we can give this celebration the credence that it really deserves. I know the Jackie Robinson Museum was supposed to open this year in Brooklyn, but haven't heard anything about that. So, you know, it kept getting delayed, but I think it was going to open. And it's a shame. Bob, there is one player I came across doing some research, and I had heard of him before. So this was Moses Fleetwood Walker. Yes. Can you, can you tell me a little bit about him? Because it was very interesting that he played, he was an African-American ball player who played years before Jackie Robinson. Yeah. Yeah, and played on what we would consider to be a major league team. Jackie holds the distinction of being the first in what we could consider to be the modern era. Right. Major but Moses Fleetwood Walker, Bud Fowler, Edward White, who many now say was the first black, who didn't necessarily identify himself as black. And maybe he didn't know he was black. I'm not sure. But his story also has come prevalent in recent years. My good friend John Thorne has written about him, who was of mixed heritage. Yeah, he was slaves. He was a child of slaves, but was fathered by a slave owner who played one game in what was considered the major leagues. And and it's much the same as Moses Fleetwood Walker, who was a barehanded catcher who started playing in the early 1880s, you know, so well before Jackie. And yeah, but a barehanded catcher uh, ouch. Yeah. It didn't last long before players like Adrian Cap Anson and others mm. formed, quote unquote, a gentleman's agreement yes. that would ban blacks from playing on white teams. There was no written doctrine, just a verbalized agreement amongst players, managers and owners who essentially said, if you allow a black to play with you, you can't play with us. Well, Anson, in this case, was so good that it was easy for him to build a coalition of followers who shared that sentiment that would essentially ban blacks 
for the next six decades until Jackie Robinson breaks the color barrier. But in Moses Fleetwood Walker's case, he was a known black. He was a darker skin, plain. There's certainly the great possibility and probability that there may have been other very light-skinned blacks who could pass themselves as white or white Cuban who snuck on teams that we don't know about. Isn't it amazing that Oscar Charleston, when he would go over to Cuba and play, he, he played, right, white players played, uh, African-American ball players played. They all, they all played. no difference there. It was no. just here. It was here that it was just. Yes, yes. That's the incredulous part about it because the major league ball players knew these guys could play because so many of them had played with them and against them in winter ball in many of these Spanish-speaking countries. So that's why I know that fear had as much to do with keeping them out as the social conditions of our time. Now, it's true that Babe Ruth barnstormed during the uh, offseason mm -hmm. against African-American players. Yes. He, he said he wanted to bring them, you know, if he got the right. chance to manage, he would bring them to the major league. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and Ruth was very friendly with Negro League players and had great admiration and respect for Negro League players because of that reason. But sad to say, it might have been what caused Ruth the opportunity to manage the Yankees. Yeah, he was too friendly with these black players. Wow. Uh, yeah. Wow. He was, he was uh, suspended a number of games or in the yeah. season, right? Because he, he, was, he refused to, right? He was barnstorming and he was told not to. And uh, he refused to listen and they, they suspended him. Yeah. Yeah, now Ruth had high regard for those Negro League players. Well, Bob, I, I, we really, really appreciate your time tonight. Uh, you've given us so, so much more than we would really expect. I mean, over an hour. It's been so enlightening. You're always welcome back. We, you, you know, you, you are just so terrific. Great storyteller. Oh, yeah. uh, we can we, talk to you all night. We uh, think you're the best. <laughs> Bob, you're the best. On our bucket list is that museum. Yes. Hopefully, you know, we're in New York where, you know, it's the worst here with the, with the coronavirus. Yeah. Yeah, but no, uh, we want to get out to the museum. Of course, we want to, you know, have Kansas City barbecue. Yeah, yes, and actually, <laughs> the second interview we had recently, who's from Kansas City, we had Ed Hearn, who was a, a former player yes. with the Royals. Oh yeah, no, I know Ed. I know Ed well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We had him on uh, last week, so we got to get to Kansas City. Yes, <laughs> you got to get to Kansas City. You can't have a baseball and barbecue podcast and, and not come to Kansas City. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and we, and we, we will. And when we do, we're going to look you up and take you out for some barbecue. Well, you, you are the best. I'm in. Count me in. <laughs> thank you and, so and, much for spending the time with us. Yeah. Thank you. And no, well, I appreciate that guys. I, yeah. I really thank you for giving me an opportunity to come on and talk a little bit about, uh, Negro Leagues history and what we're doing at the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum. So thank you so much. When are you expecting to reopen? We are optimistic about June 2nd. Our stay-at-home order ends May 15th, but we won't be anywhere near ready. Uh, there's just so many things that we have to deal with, trying to establish protocols, benchmarks, you know, making sure that we right. have vetted this opening as best as we can so that we can keep our staff and our patrons as safe as we possibly can and put in the needed guidelines 
for this phased-in reopening. But I'm optimistic by June 2nd. Terrific. We wish you nothing but the best, Bob. Absolutely. Thank you, guys. I appreciate Thank you very much. All Thank right, you stay, so stay. much. Bye-bye. Okay. Wow. Wow. Yes. Yeah. Who's better than Bob Kendrick? He's, he's fantastic. He really, he's fantastic. You know, and he, he gives so much of his time because you know that we're not the only podcast. I, we'd like to think that we're the only podcast that he comes on, the only TV show that he ever got, you know, whatever. He, he does so many of these interviews. He doesn't cut you off at all. He would have stayed on with us as long as we possibly wanted. And we wanted to stay on longer with him. But how could you do that? He's always welcome on this show. He is just a fantastic, fantastic person to talk to. He's the only person, Jeff, that if you ever wanted to get rid of me and replace me with someone else, he, you have my permission to have Bob Kendrick take my place. <laughs> and vice versa. And did it. <laughs> oh, good, because I, right after the interview, I said, hey, Bob. Right. (laughs) (laughs) But seriously, the knowledge that he has, it's not just knowledge. He's he's such a great storyteller. The stories. Oh, fantastic. But now we have uh, BaseballBBQ.com, Michael Mullen, Brett Mandel, talk about their new company, talk about their wonderful products. So let's give them a listen. Here they are. Baseball and BBQ, if you've been listening to the show, you have heard that we have a wonderful company that we've been plugging. They are new, and they have some incredible stuff. We're going to talk about it. We are very glad to have with us tonight Michael Mullen and Brett Mandel from BaseballBBQ.com. They have grilled tools and clothing for baseball fans we are very happy to welcome them so brett and mike thanks for coming on with us great to be here thank you guys we appreciate it how's business business is great so far we've only been launched less than a month now and we're doing well i think we came in at a great time right before uh, father's day and we probably launched around june 4th or so so pretty much right right in throes of Father's Day gifting, which has helped a lot. Now we've transferred that over to July 4th sales and hopefully with baseball kicking off here in a few weeks, fingers crossed, that continue to roll right along. So let's talk about first, for those of you who have not gone to the site, it's baseballbbq.com. And I think you're really going to like what you see. The items that we received were terrific. We received a fork and a spatula. And it's not just a regular fork and a spatula. The handles are baseball bats. They are, of course, not, (laughs) you're not going out in the yard and hitting a ball with them, but they are baseball bats. We're going to have you guys talk about that. Very well made, fit in the hand really nicely. You know, when you're you're flipping burgers or you're cooking chicken or, or flipping fish or like the spatula is very nice. It, it gets really under the, the food. Well, Jeff's been using it, but very nice. And it feels good in the hand. So really nice tools. We're going to have you guys talk about it. But the one thing, before we go any further, you sent us a fork 
and a spatula. Now, I know we were supposed to split that up. We, we, you can't. You cannot split up a set. I'm sorry, guys. Can't you do got it. us. Not, now, we're, uh, <laughs> now we have to send you a second one. Good job. I, I got I to tell you guys, I, I use the, the tools a couple times now. I love it. It feels great in the hand. Love the spatula. You have serrated edging and also a built-in bottle opener, which is always great. And you can also customize it, which is fantastic. So tell us about the business. Tell us how, why you got started in this. And then, you know, just tell us, tell us about it. Brett, let me, uh, I'm going to let Brett do a little background because he's, sure. he's one of the founders. Oh, great. As, as, as much as we're uh, trying to do the entrepreneurial thing here, the truth is we're just a bunch of old guy baseball players who like to play baseball together. And a bunch of us get together every year and go to an old guy world series in Arizona where you play on big league fields and spring training complexes. And over years after the game and recovering in hot tubs, uh, we talk about a lot of things. One of our guys had a father who made a grill tool out of an old bat and a broken fork. And over lots and lots of beers over many years, we said, you know, this would be a terrific business. So uh, we patented the product, and we've been working on developing it, and uh, now you can see the labor of all this work. And, and I love the fact that you can have it personalized. That is the really nice touch. You engraved it. You, you put on the side of the, the handles, baseball and BBQ, and then you took it a step further. Underneath, on the, on the bottom, you put our logo. And that was really nice, beautiful touch. Really, really nice. Well, I'm glad you guys like it. Yeah, it's, all of this has come about from those two guys, the founders of Old West Road Baseball, which is the kind of the, the leading company into baseball barbecue. But, you know, we, we saw this as not only, you know, a retail experience, hopefully someday, but also a personalization and a customization piece too, because as we know, everybody likes to have that nice personal touch to kind of call it your own. And so we felt, you know, the two, two biggest uh, things in America are baseball and barbecue, and why not throw those things together? So I, uh, my background was kind of in product development for sports and outdoor gear. And when these guys approached me with this uh, about a year and a half ago, I kind of jumped at the chance because as a baseball nut and a guy who likes to throw stuff on the grill, you couldn't have asked for something better. And then obviously with the products that we're coming out with and some of the future products that we have coming forward, you know, we just have a great opportunity to share this love and passion for both the game and the grill. The truth is that Mike had to prove himself on the field before we brought him <laughs> into the team to talk about the business. So after a couple of great outings on the mounds and a couple of uh, night world series trips, patrolling the outfield, Mike is now part of the fold. <laughs> I'm one of those crafty little lefty types, so you know I got to sneak my way into everything. And let's just, let's mention you just not you don't just have tools; you also have cutting boards, really well made cutting board. Tell us about that. Yeah, so I'm actually out here in Oregon, Central Oregon, and we have some a local bat manufacturer called McDougal Bats and and co which make incredible products and i would love for anybody and everybody to check those guys out but basically 
you know, asked them and commissioned them to say, hey, can we make a really beautiful, high quality cutting board with, you know, the, the products that an actual bat is made of? So the current products right now is, you know, kind of a, a maple hardwood combination. And it's a beautiful, beautiful piece. And we're really lucky to be able to have an actual bat manufacturer produce these for us. And I think it really helps authenticate us as a brand and, and the products that we're doing. And you have clothing on here, clothing and hats. About what Mike has brought to the business is, is really an idea of the brand and expanding the brands. So it was, it was a wonderful idea and the grill tools are, are great to play with and of course have turned out phenomenally in terms of being produced. But then our little fork baller mascot and our uh, step up to the plate logo, uh, everything has been terrific in terms of, of building something that people want to be a part of. They want to show it off, uh, whether it's uh, on their cutting board, on their fork, on their uh, spatula or on their head and shirts. Yeah, I'm looking at it now. It's really cute. It's a, it's a baseball with a face and an old, you know, handle, well, not a handlebar mustache, but close to it, holding the spatula and the fork. That, I could see that being a very popular shirt to wear. You mentioned uh, other new, new products that you might be coming out with. What, like, what kind of new products? Yeah, we have already uh, looked into the fold, have started uh, doing sampling of basically all of your normal grilling items. So we have a pair of tongs that are coming out. Uh, ah, nice. A scraper, yeah, a scraper, a bottle opener, and as well as a pigtail. Now, I'm not sure if you guys are familiar with the pigtail, but a lot of those big barbecue guys who grill the huge chunks of uh, beef have this long implement with a little hook on the end to mm -hmm. be able to flip. And so that's called the pigtail. So those four products are, are in the mix as we speak. And I think we'll really nicely complete the, the set of tools for the grill. You know, the, the thing is, it, in all seriousness, barbecue tools, you know, you can get some really crappy, I, I could say crappy, right, Jeff? We don't have to put special. You can get some really <laughs> crappy tools out there. You guys know what I'm talking about. You know, the, the, the brushes that come apart, the, the tongs that, how, how about, you know, I've had plenty of barbecue tongs. You know, they come in a set and you get the tongue and, and you go to grab something. And it doesn't even it doesn't even hold what you're trying to grab, and and it, they feel light in your hands. It's just they're not good quality. And cutting boards the same thing. You know you can get these thin, bad cutting boards. I mean when you grill, you want stuff that's really going to stand up to, you know what you're doing. You're outside and you need some good stuff. So it really is nice that you guys have. I think you've really tapped into something. And I think the main thing. It's just getting the word out. Because I think if people see what you have to offer, they're, they're going to buy. They're, they're definitely going to buy from you because the, the stuff is quality. It's well, just getting the word out. Yep. Yeah, definitely. And, I, and I, that was kind of the goal is not only are you getting a unique product, and you know, we're very fortunate that nobody else in the history of baseball or barbecuing has ever patented these products before. So that has obviously given us a great opportunity since nobody else has these products out there. So besides the uniqueness of the bat handle, I definitely wanted to bring across a very quality product so that somebody will be very happy with their experience and will want to come back and tell their friends. So 
100% agree with you. I think what we've seen and heard from people who've already bought the products, luckily we're almost 200 orders in in the first three weeks, which is really, you know, beyond expectations. But I think and hopefully that once the people can see that and the friends come over and they're barbecuing with them and they're showing the tools off that a lot of word of mouth and, and start spreading the word. So, yeah, absolutely. Are we still offering the discount for our listeners? Podcast? Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. I just want to, I want to make sure before I guess. Our listeners, when you go to check out, put in pod 10 and you'll get 10% off your order. So that's, that's pretty nice. Great. I, I see that on your site. You can sign up for a uh, newsletter. You can subscribe. You people get newsletters right into their mailbox. And I guess they have uh, giveaways, share delicious recipes, and high new products. You want to tell us about that? I think we're excited about building a community here of, of baseball players, drill lovers, and as we're uh, as we're expanding the offerings and growing the community, it'll be fun to have people share their experiences with uh, with what they're being uh, what they're able to do with the schools, uh, what they do with uh, with their baseball lives, fans. And maybe we can have some people say, look, I'm going to be at a game. I'm going to be tailgating in section such and such. Why don't you what we're making? And if we can get big enough, uh, maybe we can have uh, our own little world series of barbecue someplace where everyone puts our tools to use and shows off what they can do. I am going to click the subscribe button right now. <laughs> I look forward to getting a new newsletter. <laughs> yeah, and it's and kind of what – you know, just to play out what Brett said, it's, it's definitely building that community and offering people a reason to come back. You know, they may have our grilled products, but if we're giving away amazing recipes or we're talking a little bit about baseball or we're sharing some experiences or whatever, it's just, it's literally bringing the, the community of baseball and barbecue together because that's, you know, really for us, that's what it's all about. So we're excited to be able to share that and currently building up the roster of, people who are in the in the business on both sides and helping out with us and, and getting the word out. So we're really excited about that side of it. Yeah, one of the things I find with some of the sites that I visit is these forums, the questions, you know, everybody's at a different level. You'd be surprised. Some some of the things that you think are, are obvious or not so obvious when it comes to grilling or, you know, smoking, you know, whether people are using gas grills, charcoal grills, smokers, different types of smokers, you know, the offset smokers, the water smokers, pellet grills. I mean, it's just, it goes on and on. It's definitely nice to have a place that you can go to, to maybe learn about the things, to see products that relate to you, that you can feel comfortable with, you know, that you know you're, you're not going to get steered in the wrong direction. Building a brand like that is is great. It's great. And and we're glad to be part of it and, and help you with doing that. Thanks so much. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Can can be happier. And now I don't know if you said this before we started courting, but with baseball coming back now, you know, maybe people will they, they won't be so upset now. You know, people the fans were angry at baseball. So maybe <laughs> <laughs> maybe now they'll 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 be a little you know they'll want these things more we, we certainly uh, hope. obviously yeah. we we love the game so many people love the game so many people are frustrated about the business but there's 
there's not much better than grilling some dogs, grilling some uh, some brisket, watching a game, drinking some beers. Hopefully that'll be back soon. Mike, you say you're from Oregon. So, I mean, you're a uh, Seattle Mariners fan. I guess that's the closest team up there. I am. Yeah, actually, I grew up in Washington State, kind of on the Olympic Peninsula, the coastal side of it. So I've been a Mariners fan my whole life. Yep. And, and Brett, what about you? Uh, any allegiance to team? Absolutely. I'm here in Philadelphia, so I bleed Phillies red. Well, we like, we, we like Mike better because we're Mets fans. But, you know, Brett, we actually, Jeff and I, had a, a great experience. We, as you know, at uh, Citizens Bank Park, Greg Luzinski has Bulls Barbecue. Exactly. It's my favorite yeah. place. There. Jeff and I, it was, what an experience. We, we got in touch with them. They treated us like royalty. We, we went through the press entrance, and we were given a tour of the stadium, and we had a personal meeting with Greg Luzinski. Couldn't be nicer. And uh, it's, it's actually, it's, I forget what number episode it is, Jeff, but you could, you could catch it on our, on our webpage. Great guy. He yeah. was a heck of a hitter, and mm-hmm. uh, he was the Phillies 1980 World Series winning team. Yes. And then he's got, uh, he's got these ribs with a terrific rub that uh, you pair it with some baked beans and some slaw. Mm-hmm. That's my go-to meal at Citizens Bank. Brett, they brought us. It was amazing. It was the, the head chef there. So, you know, Greg Luzinski, he's, he's not just a figurehead. I mean, he no, makes no. – it's his sauce. It's his – he's oversees this. That's right. And but he's they, there at every – you can go up and talk to him, get autographed. Yeah. yeah. You know, have, they bring us – it was funny. We're sitting there, and because and, uh, they the head chef says, they, they come up out to him, and they said, what should we bring them? And he says, uh, just, you know, samples of everything. They brought us, like, a rack of ribs. Yep. They brought us the, the tur- yeah, turkey leg. They uh, brought us like the big uh, sandwiches. I mean, the pulled pork, everything. And, and we said to the chef, we said, or, or the guy who gave us the tour, are you going to eat with us? And he said, no, this is, he says, I eat it all the time. It's just for you guys. And Jeff and I are looking at each other. And we're like, how are we going to eat all this? <laughs> I mean, it, you don't want to insult your hosts. But so, and, and then we, we still had the game to watch. We couldn't finish, we couldn't eat the turkey leg. So we were going to wrap it up. And Jeff's like, well, I guess I could bring it home. Only problem is it was a hot day. The game hadn't happened yet. We're in New York and this is in Philadelphia. And we had no way to store it. So I said, Jeff, it's going to go bad. I've never been so full in my life. We just, oh, the food, it's really good. It's yeah, highly recommended. Sauce is a little tangy, real sweet. Uh, I, I like it. I think it's terrific. Yeah. Our next, we're going to try to get to, um, to Washington to go to, Jeff, help me out. We're trying to go to Baltimore at the Blue Pals place. Blue Pals. Cards, that's terrific too. Yeah, flipping their uh, their ribs with our pigtail. Yes. Oh, <laughs> nice. Yes, that'd be very nice. So, Mike, when you're when you're home on a weekend and you're not busy with the business, what are you cooking? That's a good question. Literally changing all the time, and I think that's another fun thing about doing working with these guys and doing this business because when you really dive into it and start following other great, you know pit masters and barbecue guys and everything like that. So 
you know, I, I think one of my favorites right now is tri-tip for sure. Love to throw on a tri-tip and, and have that smoke for a few hours beforehand. But, you know, I've got two little kids at home. I've got a three-year-old and a seven-year-old. So there's a lot of hot dogs and burgers and all that fun stuff for them. But, but when they're out of the house or away, it's, you know, steak time and, and uh, stuff like that. So having, having fun with this for sure. Tri-tip is very big out, out there, right? That's, a, that's kind of a West Coast meat. I guess. I mean, I love it. So if, if you want to call it West Coast meat, that's fine. Well, what's, uh, what's big with you guys? What's big out east? Well, we yeah. do a lot of ribs. I, I did some ribs, chicken, just the basic stuff. Steak. I just, uh, tonight I, I made some pork chops with use your tools, which is great. Yeah. So, yeah. So just the basic stuff. Len is the more uh, sophisticated griller than I am. So uh, I, I just stick to the basics. And Brett, not, I, I wouldn't say sophisticated, and I just say tri-tip because everything I've seen on tri-tip is that it's, you know, like a California kind of thing or West Coast. So I have not tried it yet, but I definitely oh, want yeah. to. Every once in a while, I like to make a, a brisket, but, you know, that, that's, you've got to, that's a major preparation to do that. I guess if, I'm, if I've got a go-to, it's my ribs. You know, I've got a couple of smokers, and and, and I like that. Do you have a special sauce? You know, you got your I own secret ingredients. I actually have been making Ray Sheehan, who is he's got a company called Barbecue uh, Barbecue Guru. Buddha. Uh, no, Barbecue Buddha. I'm sorry, Barbecue Buddha. He actually has a, a book that he came out with, award-winning sauces. And I've been making his Memphis mop sauce, and it's oh, yeah. really good. I recommend the book, and I recommend his sauces. Does the Memphis sauce have a little more vinegar in it? I'm trying to think. I think it has apple cider vinegar. Oh, apple cider, yeah. yeah. Usually the Memphis sauces are a little, I think, a little more on the vinegar side, but they're still very good. Yeah. Yeah, I've been making that sauce for the first time. I used to buy the sauce all the time. But I'm trying to, you know, make some sauces. So trying to go all, all authentic. And Brad, what about you? When you're home on a weekend, what what are you cooking? I uh, I've got this uh, this secret sauce that's uh, that we like to make. That's based with Trader Joe's soy vey sauce. The yeah, is the secret ingredient there. And uh, we marinate the heck out of chicken wings and and do some nice things with that. That's uh, the kids, the kids love it. It takes me like two seconds to make the sauce, but but that's the secret ingredient. Yeah, that's good. That soy vey is very good. Absolutely. Yeah. The uh, name of the company is Bob Baseball BBQ. Check it out at baseballbbq.com. So please check them out. Anything else you guys want to say about the company? Now we're we're real excited to have people try it out. It's been uh, years in the making. We've been really really excited to to build the brand and build the company and. Hopefully, we'll build a community of, of ball players and grippers who, uh, who enjoy sharing their love of the game, love of the grill. Well, we thank you for taking the time to uh, come on baseball and BBQ. Wishing you the best of luck. And we're telling everybody to go check out your company. We're plugging away. Great <laughs> company. You guys have a – seriously, you have a great company. We don't we, – we will not promote something that we don't believe in. You should know that we do believe in it. Oh, we I do believe. That. I do believe. <laughs> we believe. And well, we thank we can... you guys for joining us. 
join you guys out on a barbecue tour sometime. All right. That would be terrific. Well, we want to thank Michael and Brick for coming on. Check out their website, www.baseballbbq.com. Check out their accessories. Check out their barbecue tools. Check out their cutting boards. Check out their T-shirts and hats. Very, you know, good stuff. Good stuff. You know, we do a lot of this by Zoom. If they, if they sent me a shirt, I'd wear it. I'd wear it right on Zoom. Yeah, and I'd wear a hat. You know that. <laughs> yeah, so if they're listening, and I hope they are. <laughs> Jeff, this was really a fun episode. Yes. Again, so, so happy to be with you. The next time we speak, uh, next time we release an episode, not the next time you and I speak, but uh, will it? Will there be baseball? I think if they play, it will be in the next two weeks, right? right yes, that's right. It'll be the first uh, couple of days, absolutely. So we might actually have some some real baseball to talk about. But what's great is we love baseball history. If you want to get in touch with us, you can give us a call at five one six eight five five eight two one four. Email us. Our email address is baseballandbbq at gmail.com. We have a Twitter address, at BaseballMBBQ. Check us out on our Facebook page, BaseballMBBQ. Instagram, BaseballMBBQ, with barbecue all spelled out. And check us out on our website, www.baseballandbbq.weebly.com. With that, why don't, Len, why don't we have baseball bring us home? We'll see you next time.